What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Thanks for listening to the Intelligence Squared podcast this year. We're already launching our first events of 2017. And for our listeners who have loved ones living in or around London, you can buy them the gift of our events and debates with the Intelligence Squared gift card, which can be used for any of our events coming up next year. The Intelligence Squared gift card is available on our website, intelligencesquared.com. Now, here's this week's episode. We hope you enjoy listening. Thank you, Hannah. Thanks to all of you for coming. Uh, The subject before us tonight, Trump and American tragedy. And our speakers are divided between those who think that should come with a question mark at the end and those who think a full stop will do just fine. Um, And we have all those views represented tonight. So let me uh, begin uh, by introducing on my far right the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian and regular foreign policy columnist for the Washington Post, Anne Applebaum. You'll know him as a regular commentator on US politics and on world affairs. He served the, I was going to say, the first President Clinton, turned out to be the only President Clinton, as Assistant Secretary of State uh, for Public Affairs. He was an advisor to the current Clinton campaign. He is Jamie Rubin. On my immediate right here is the former vice chairman of Republicans Abroad and chair of American Voices International. She also worked in the White House under President George W. Bush, as well as on the first gubernatorial campaign of Mitt Romney in Massachusetts, whatever happened to him. Uh, She is, and warm welcome please, for Stacey Hilliard. He may be back, they're saying, over here. We'll get into that. Uh, On my immediate left, a weekly columnist for The Independent, a regular contributor to my own paper, The Guardian, uh, an expert writer on foreign affairs and diplomacy, Mary Dijewski. And and completing our lineup in the flesh, as it were, is the CEO of the Roosevelt Group, who served on the executive board of the World Economic Forum. But crucially for our purposes, he has been tipped in a few places for a role in the incoming administration of Donald Trump. So I'm sure you're going to want to welcome Ted Maller. 
And I'm going to say, uh, just introduce our two guests who are joining us by video, and I don't know if we're able to see them straight away, but the first of those uh, is a professor at Columbia University, one of America's leading experts on constitutional law, a lifelong Democrat. He's actually served administrations of both parties and written extensively. He is Philip Bobbitt. Are you seeing him? I think you are. Welcome to Philip. And also, coming in and out of view, um, depending, is the former Director of Strategy for Prime Minister David Cameron, uh, co-founder and CEO of Crowdpack, a Silicon Valley political tech startup, teaches at Stanford, and is the only person, I think, here who can claim to have inspired his own character on the thick of it. He is Steve Hilton. So let's get straight on with it. And, and the opening uh, area I want to get into is really we're going to look forward and we're going to focus on what next, but we, we thought it was a good idea to do just a little bit of explanation of what just happened on November the 8th, what uh, at least a few of our panellists think explains this result, which I think it's fair to say not too many people in any field, not just mine, uh, saw coming. Uh, and so why don't we just hear a sort of an opening thesis from... You, uh, Stacey Hilliard, on what you think explains this pr pretty well unexpected victory for Donald Trump on November the 8th. Well, I'm not sure I would say it was an unexpected victory. I think a lot of people anticipated this. Um, did you predict I, it? I did predict it, and you can ask my partner. I won 100 pounds off of him because wow. of that. Should have so. tweeted. <laughs> but um, I think one of the big reasons that this happened is because Hillary Clinton was the candidate. And I think she was very much a flawed candidate. She was very much the presumptive incumbent in a year that was not a year to be an incumbent. Her message was very much, hey, you had Obama, let's have it again, Obama Mach 2. And that message didn't resonate with people who hadn't had the recovery that they were expecting uh, since 2008. So people were still about $4,000 worse off than they were before the Great Recession happened. People were frustrated. They didn't see that they had benefited from any of the recovery. And I think that was that economic message that Donald Trump said, I'm going to create jobs, is what pushed him forward. And, and is it your view that, in a way, that was always true and baked in early on and actually all the ups and downs of the campaign, and it was a very dramatic campaign, in September, October, November, the debates, the revelations, the tapes, in a way, none of that made a difference. The mind was made up because this was a change year. It was definitely a change year, and I think you saw that with the support that Bernie Sanders had, and particularly the support he had from millennials. And, and Hillary wasn't able, with, particularly with millennial women, she wasn't able to get that support that they expected. And they were really looking at what are the policies, and they're voting on policies. And they're saying, I want to be able to pay my student loans off. I want to be able to get a job. I want to be able to advance myself. And they weren't seeing that being possible under her. So that's the perspective of a Republican who, it's fair to say, was not a Donald Trump supporter um, early on in the process. What about you, Ted Malik? Well, you know, we heard the theory there that in a way it's mainly about the deficiencies of Hillary Clinton. Is that your explanation for why Donald Trump won? Well, it's certainly one of the reasons. I think I take issue at the first, uh, with the title of this whole debate, calling it a tragedy. We got the question mark in there. Well, I don't think it's a question mark. I don't think in a Shakespearean year either is it a comedy. I think what Trump will prove that this is very much a Republican play. Uh, the pendulum has swung. I mean, this is a pendulum year, and it's really an election of realignment. So we've moved from a blue country to a red country, except on the coast. And I think that the social science term to explain all this 
uh, Bronstein and others have used it, is class inversion. So what we have is a white middle class that has been largely uh, excluded as a result of globalization and globalism from participation in the economy, and they basically said, like in the movie, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore. Yeah. Professor Bobbitt, it's great to have you. We're looking for an explanation for this election, which not many, some, but not many, uh, called right in advance. We've talked about the perceived deficiencies of Hillary Clinton, and maybe that was part of it. And then uh, we've also heard that just it was a change year, and in a change year, the pendulum was going to swing away from Democrats to, towards Republicans. What is your own explanation for why this outcome came about? Well, it's certainly true that uh, all political societies uh, have more values than they can realize, and so they bring to a temporary preeminence one party, and then after four or eight years, they shift gears and bring in another party to support different values. There's a pattern of that. That's partly, I think, uh, an explanation. But I think the broader picture is that this is the change happening all across the industrial and post-industrialized societies. It is a change as the kind of state we have had in the U.S. Uh, since the 1860s and uh, Europe since the 1870s has begun to very rapidly decay with the end of the long wars of the 20th century. And the reaction of groups that were linked to that state, industrial groups, national groups, because each of these industrial nation states favored a particular sort of ethnic and political group, that reaction is playing out all across the democracies. The, the, could, I want to put this to you then, Steve Hilton, if you can hear us. Yeah. Um, th this is this idea that there was a common pattern here, Brexit, then Trump, the phrase used now, perhaps overused, about those who are left behind, uh, and that this is really about some of those bigger forces that Philip Bobbitt was perhaps describing and a, and a, a response to globalisation, etc. Just sketch out for us if you think that is what was going on in this election. Um, I, th I think that's certainly a big part of it, but it's not the only thing. I think that um, really, I think we, it's important to look at the election, not just in, I know that the, the, the theme of, of most of our discussion is going to be Trump, but I think it's important to look at it in the context of the, the whole election, because of course the Republicans won not just the presidency, but the Senate and the House and state legislatures across the country and governor's races. It was a really big defeat for Democrats in general, not just Hillary Clinton. And I think that what that tells you is that this was a, a repudiation, a big repudiation of, of the Obama years, and I think in, in two particular ways. Um, and the first is actually beyond just Obama, and that's where I agree about this general point on globalization. I think the economic explanation is pretty fundamental. For me, the most telling statistic, the most telling data point that explains more than anything else about what happened, as Stacey touched on this earlier, is that Despite incomes in America uh, happily increasing in the last 12 months, that, that, uh, that came out during the campaign in, in about September. If you look at the long-run picture, the median household income in America today is lower than it was in 1999. I think that has two uh, aspects to it. First of all, the straightforward economic one, which is that people... Now, that's half of America, half of American households earning less than than uh, before Bush began his presidency and Obama. So they've had eight years of Bush, eight years of Obama, and throughout all of that, incomes are down, while the rich have got richer. 
And I think that explains not just their sense of economic frustration, but political frustration too, because the sense is that it doesn't matter who you vote for. It doesn't matter whether you have Republicans at the White House or Democrats. You know, literally the rich get richer, we get poorer. And so that's what I think explains that sense of desperation. It says, look, we're going to vote for Trump, despite all his obvious flaws as an individual and as a candidate and so on, because they're just looking for something that will change things. But I do think there's one other aspect to this that I think it's important to bear in mind. And I think this is probably particularly uh, a U.S. aspect rather than the global one. And that is this very strong sense, I think, on, on the part of a lot of people of being really not just left behind economically, but, but really condescended to and spoken down to by the people they perceive to be running the economy and running government. Well, that, well, that goes nicely to Anne Applebaum, because you've written some, uh, some things in these areas and talked about this, that it isn't just about economics. There's a cultural dimension to this. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, in something as big as an election like this, it's very hard to pinpoint exactly why everybody voted for what reason. There are many reasons. Um, but I think a lot of the economic explanations have been pretty superficial. Um, if you look at how the voting went, you know, actually the poorest Americans, and this is all across, including, in, for example, in Texas, which is a red state, um, the poorest Americans voted for Hillary Clinton. So we're not talking about exactly, it's not like the poor rose up and overthrew the rich. It's a much more complicated um, problem. Um, I also think that there's not enough attention has been paid to how Trump ran his campaign and the language that he was using to attract people. Um, he really, he also created a kind of us and them, um, very much like authoritarian leaders do. We, the real Americans, mm -hmm. against the fake Americans. And he created a sense of identity um, around a group that hadn't, I mean, I suppose it's been appealed to like that before, but not in quite a clear, not quite as aggressive a way. And he appealed to them almost as if he were a, in the way that, say, you know, a European nationalist appeals to his own nation, you know, um, you know, the Dutch to Dutch people, you know, we need to be more Dutch. And this was really a very, make America great again, um, has an element of nostalgia to it as well, you know, that it's a kind of bringing back the real America. And I think that um, at a time when politics are incredibly, um, uh, seem very distant from people, and they seem very, you know, in a world where you can do all kinds of things very quickly. You know, you can order something online and click a button and get it delivered the next day. And you can like something and feel like you've made a statement. Um, politics seems very complicated. It takes a long time. Democracy is very boring. It's very frustrating. Um, and Trump seemed to offer some kind of instant solutions in a very classic populist sort of magical thinking. I will fix it. I will make things great again. And he appealed to... Um, the cultural identity of, of, of a part of America. So just, and I think that was part of why he won. Just to take further the point you made about European populist figures, some people have said, in response to the kind of argument Steve Hilton was making about economics, they've said, look, don't underestimate the extent to which this was a nativist appeal Absolutely. loaded with, with racial nativist. resentments because he was saying, and people said, make America great again means make America white again. And there was that this was element implied. about gender. It was a female candidate. And people have said that, you know, that you, ca you cannot exclude that from the picture. Just, just what do you okay, think on so those, I the race much, and the gender? I very much don't want to say that everybody who voted for Trump is a racist. I'm not saying that. But I think there was an element of, um, you know, we've had this black president, we have this woman, you know, let's have one of us again. You know, let's bring back um, somebody who is familiar, somebody who belongs in the familiar hierarchy. Um, let's get back to where we were before and to a lot of people that had a subconscious or conscious appeal. And by the way, you could see it 
you know, if he didn't say it exactly, you could absolutely see it on social media. I mean, the, the, the racism, the anti-Semitism, and the misogyny of his supporters was something I have never seen before in American politics ever. And there was a lot of it, and it was all the time, and everybody who, who interacted at all online saw it. And so, so that can't, it can't be eliminated as an issue. So, Ted, we should let you have a response, just on that point. So there is an alt-left as well as an alt-right, and the political spectrum is a very wide spectrum. It is in the United States, it is in European countries. Uh, I think that Trump is really very much a center-right politician, not a far-right politician by any means. What would he have he's, to he's do? He's already to be bringing people into his administration. What would he have to do for you to describe him as far-right? Uh-huh. He'd have to prove that he was an authoritarian. In terms of actions rather than just words. Exactly. Let, we're going to get back into all of this, I'm sure. But, um, Jamie, let's go to you on, on, on what now. In a way, we've we talked up to ni- November the 8th. November the 8th to November the 30th, we've had 22 days of him being president-elect Trump. What have we seen? What have we learned? What little clues have we got into well, what's First of all, just let me thank you for excusing me from the explanation part of the discussion because it would be too painful. Um, <laughs> Look, uh, there's a couple of things that I think you can see uh, already. In the domestic area, uh, we have seen the president-elect suggest in a meeting with the New York Times that maybe his actions on Obamacare won't be so drastic and then hire as the, uh, or propose as the Secretary of Health and Human Services the single most opponent of Obamacare. So I think we're seeing... That going back and forth, and we'll just have to see how that comes about. I tend to do foreign policy. I'll stick with that, except I, I can't help but throw in that, that it looks like Donald Trump will be the least rich member of his cabinet because he's hired only billionaires for the uh, domestic area. And that's not a comment about what his real wealth is. It's just a comment about how rich these All people are. All of them are working for a dollar, by the way. Right. They don't need the money. You're absolutely exactly. right. Um, <laughs> The, um, on foreign affairs, where I actually know some of the individuals involved, I don't know whether you call it alt-right or extreme-right or way on the right, it would be hard to find two more extreme right-wing people who will spend the most time all day long with Donald Trump, particularly uh, the national security advisor, Ms. Uh, General Flynn, who holds views that were deemed so unusual by the military and the intelligence community that he was uh, essentially pushed out of his job. It ended up being called a management issue when he was the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, but basically he was so out of sync with the mainstream of the national security bureaucracy. Not the Obama. Obama. Uh, Let me just have my speak and you can please jump in. We're talking about an Obama administration where the national security bureaucracy, not the president, the national security bureaucracy asked him to go. The president had nothing to do with it. These were generals. These were uh, the, the heads of the, uh, the national intelligence community thought General Flynn was just too aggressive. They had things called Flynn facts, which were wild, unusual things. Today's New York Times gives you an example of where General Flynn believes, not only the one you've heard that radical Islam is a is, is, is the explanation. Islam is more of an explanation than the radicalization of youth. 
That's the way he would put it, and, you know, he's entitled to that view. But he's regarded George Bush as having not sufficiently focused on Islam. This is General Flynn regards former President Bush as missing the point when he went to a mosque and tried to say that Islam is not the problem, it's a small percentage. That's not Obama, that's President Bush that he regarded as as insufficiently anti-Islamic for him. But the real kicker came out today, which is that General Flynn believes, and I am not exaggerating, that the radical Islamic groups like Al-Qaeda and others are linked up with China and North Korea. (laughs) And that there is an axis of China, North Korea, and radical Islam that poses a threat to the United States. If you don't believe me, please look at today's New York Times. There's a very clear description of what's in his book, and I urge you to read it if you think I'm exaggerating. So all I would say is that it's very hard to know what Trump's foreign policy is going to be. The only thread that holds it together, the only one I can see, is an extreme approach to the terrorist counterterrorism problem by focusing more on the religion than the Obama and Bush administrations did, and roughly the same on the counterterrorism classic approach. Okay. We haven't heard yet from Mary, Jessica, and I want to bring you in just on these other things. We heard spiritedly from Jamie about the one particular foreign policy appointment, but lots has happened, Twitter and other, just the process. Just what light can you shed on that? Well, I think there's been an enormous amount of criticism, um, especially in Europe. I mean, I think Europe still has not got Donald Trump, and it probably won't, maybe for a year, maybe for eight years we could be looking at it. We just do not get it, and we didn't get it through the campaign, which is why we actually got it more wrong than even Americans got it. Um, But I agree a lot with what Steve has said, and I think we've got to get used to the idea. This is a president who may be, we may be looking at the future shape of the American presidency, not in terms of Donald Trump's idiosyncrasies, but in terms of a president who speaks direct to the people, who uses the social media, who answers back, who does all sorts of things that used not to be at all acceptable. I mean, in the future, these things may become the norm. Second thing I'd like to say is that looking at the transition... From over here, there's been enormous amounts of criticism saying, oh my goodness, isn't this chaotic? Oh, he doesn't know what he's doing. He doesn't know who to appoint and all the rest of it. He started incredibly early. The United States has a long transition. This is a luxury compared especially what the United Kingdom has in terms of forming governments and putting people in power. He has the luxury. He has until January to get his main posts sorted out. I don't think that what we've been looking at at chaos, it's been quite a sensible system of interviewing people for the top jobs. Good. Um, Let's move into now, imagine it's January the 20th, he will be inaugurated and look ahead to what kind of uh, policy agenda he will pursue. And we're going to divide this into the domestic area and the foreign policy area. And Stacey Hilliard, why don't you kick us off with what you think he might do and what you think he should do. And I know those are different questions, but what his, what his domestic agenda is likely to consist of? Well, what he should do and what he might do is he needs to do something that's a bit of a quick win for him, something that he can not only just get through the House and the Senate, but also get a bit of bipartisan support. And one of the things that they're talking a lot about with that is the infrastructure bill, uh, rebuilding our bridges and our roads, which is something that is desperately needed. We've heard that with multiple presidents over the past several cycles, and we haven't really seen that. 
Um, so that's one of the ways that he's looking at actually growing uh, some jobs and, and putting some money back into the economy. Um, I think one of the other things that he can do that he's talked about doing and a lot of pundits have, have spoken about is some tax reform. And they think that that's something that can happen quite quickly, flattening the tax code. Our tax code's incredibly complicated and trying to find a way that we can reduce the number of income tax brackets. Uh, so that's one thing that they're looking at. But then the big thing that everybody talks about, and Jamie touched on this already, is Obamacare. And in the past, you had heard repeal and replace. Now they're saying repeal and transition. And what they're talking about with that is saying, well, maybe what we'll do is we'll give it a, time, a timeline. We'll put an expiry date on it. That at that time, then it falls off the cliff. And so maybe that will force uh, those in the Senate and then to be able to actually put together a package that will pass. I, I'm just struck by this point about infrastructure spending and roads and highways and bridges. The idea that this would be a big part of Trump's agenda. And I'm just tempted to say that would have been a big part of what a President Hillary Clinton would have wanted to do too. And therefore, will Democrats in Congress actually end up giving the green light to that because it's something they would have wanted to do anyway? Yeah. yeah. Um, we'll, we'll Steve, I, briefly, and then we'll come to Jamie. Yeah. I'll do a very quick response. I think that the crucial difference in how they might, uh, how President Clinton would have approached it and how Trump is likely to approach it is, lies in the funding of it. And that's where you might get a disagreement, even though the aim of investing in infrastructure might be shared. I think the, the Democratic approach and the Clinton approach would have relied more on public spending as the source of the financing, whereas Trump's approach, in my view, correctly, would identify the source of funding as coming from uh, the private sector, from pension funds and so on, and therefore the revenue that uh, comes from the infrastructure, for example, in the form of tolls, being a crucial part of the mix, not just straightforward okay. public spending to pay for it. Jamie, so that, that's one difference? Well, um, I'd, I'd, I'm going to agree with you, except for the part you didn't say who would pay the tolls. I happen to have been a commissioner of the Port Authority in New York, one of these weird jobs that I had very briefly. And what I learned is there's plenty of cash to, and, and money to build infrastructure in the United States. There's trillions of available dollars. The problem is no politician wants to ask the people to pay tolls to fund the infrastructure. Well, I'm interested to see who the politicians are who are going to ask for the tolls. But what you didn't hear is that the original bill by Donald Trump, as I understand it, was more about tax cuts for programs that were already planned. That it was essentially to take existing infrastructure plans and give a tax break to the people who were going to build it, rather than building more than was planned, which I agree with you, would have come from public funds. And that's what the Democrats want to do. One big obvious difference, infrastructure project, is the wall that he promises to build. He always said Mexico was going to pay for it. I, I'm tempted to say, how's that working out? But just tell us about the that as an infrastructure project. Is he, is he, is he serious about it? I that? think he's deadly serious about it. I think there'll be a shovel in the ground. What you might not realize is there's already a wall... Yep. In Southern California, that extends for many, 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 many miles, and it will be extended. The entire thing will not be a physical wall. I wrote about this at length, and I think part of the wall be electronic, part of the wall might indeed be a fence, but there will be an infrastructure project on the wall with our southern border because you can't have a country that doesn't respect its own national sovereignty. Stacey, do you just want to come in on the wall point? Well, I've, I've actually kind of said all along that, you know, he's not going to build this actual wall across the, the entire border. Do you border. think his supporters who voted for him knew that? 
Well, I'm from Texas, and I think we knew that you're not going to build a wall. We have nice, beautiful rivers and natural border there. And, it's, and I think that people see that that is actually addressing the issue of the pressures that illegal immigration put on. And coming from a border state, we see that all the time, the pressures it puts on on the border towns, how it decimates education systems, the health care systems. And that has to be funded by somebody. And it has to be tax dollars, and it's usually from the states that that's being funded. And it's causing a lot of problems um, that when we have the immigration debate, we have two debates. We have an illegal immigration debate and a legal debate. Mm. And I think that people often mix the two and assume that if we're talking about immigration, then we don't want people coming over and actually taking um, any jobs such as in high tech or if they're programmers and as opposed to the illegal immigration debate, which I think is something that a Definitely. lot of people... And on. I want to bring you in. And I just wanted to say something about the wall. Um, I think the wall was, to refer to what I was saying earlier, I don't think the wall... It matters whether the wall is real or not. The wall was a, was a metaphor. You know, the wall was, let's keep people out. You know, let's make America great again. Let's protect what we have. Um, it was an image that appealed to crowds. Remember, he would shout, build the wall, build the wall, and people would applaud. And I don't think it really, you know, as you say, something like a third of the border is already covered by either a wall or a fence. And actually, the illegal immigration problem in the United States is not really about people crossing the border. It's more about people flying in and overstaying visas. That's actually the main source of illegal immigration. So the wall is a kind of, it's a completely phony, it's not a real problem. It's a phony, it's a... It's an image. It's a thing we need to we need to conjure up, you know, to help create this this kind of tribal identity. Let's so. get on to foreign policy. I know we're, we're rattling through here, but let's talk about that because there's a lot there to say. There's a specific argument to to, have, to be had, and we're going to have it about uh, Russia and Vladimir Putin. But Jamie, can you just give us a little tour de raison of what Donald, what we know of what Donald Trump's intentions are with the world, perhaps outside Russia, because we do want to hear Mary and Anne on that. But the Middle East, on China, he talked about China a lot. Just give us a sense of what you think the, the, the Trump doctrine might actually be. Well, as I said, I think that the theme, to the extent you can find a thread in the statements and the, the policy choices that have been focused on or the, the personnel, is a more aggressive stance on um, on the religious background of terrorists and the immigration link, even today, the uh, Somali from Ohio State, uh, the president-elect, and I'm sorry, unlike some other people in this room, I actually take it seriously when the president-elect speaks to the public. President Obama tweeted and used uh, social media for eight years. There's nothing new about this. The question is, what does he say? What are the words that are chosen? And I, having worked for a president, I took the words pretty seriously. And so when a president speaks, I take it seriously. Maybe that's a mistake. Maybe I should be in the metaphor business. But, <laughs> but um, what he said today is that the Somali didn't belong in the United States. I don't think we know whether he was born here or whether he was an immigrant yet or whether his we parents were born here. I, I don't know the answer to that. Times. Well, so then, so then you read the New York Times. I hope you get all your facts there rather than some of the other places. In any event, the point is, is that that will be a theme. That will be a focus of the administration. Mm. On China, we'll see if he starts a trade war. The president has the power to start a trade war. It won't be a congressional thing. It'll be a presidential thing. I think that would be an extremely 
ill-advised thing to do, but it's something he promised. On that, we haven't seen one of those in, in that recently. Right. The, do trade wars become shooting wars? Uh, well, I would say it a different way. The fact that the United States and China have found a way to manage their adversarial relationship is partly a function of increased trade relations, deeming it less in people's interest to start a, a shooting war in the South China Sea, where the current Chinese uh, president has taken a very aggressive stance, and we'll just have to see what happens. But uh, I, I do need to veer into the Russia subject, because okay. it is the dominating subject of, of the Trump uh, foreign policy, of the European foreign policy. We're about to have a French president. It's either going to be the Fillon or, or Marie Le Pen, who is literally regarding Don, uh, Vladimir Putin as... A, a friend to be, sanctions should be lifted, despite what's gone on in Syria, despite the fact that Vladimir Putin reached deep inside the American political system and risked, risk, this is the point, not what he did, that he would risk a conflict with the United States by digging deep into our system, and that comes after a big country invaded a small country. Just to explain to people here, you're talking about the I'm hacking, I'm talking about the hacking WikiLeaks. Of, and WikiLeaks. And so for those of you who are Republicans who used to believe, and particularly a Mitt Romney former associate, Mitt Romney regarded and turned out to be right, yes. that Russia was the biggest threat we faced in 2012. Well, I think we face it. And what's worse is that we're not going to have, we, the, those of us who are concerned about a Russia, and remember what we're talking about here. We're talking about a president who invited into his office Bashar Assad, who has been working with Iran, working with Hezbollah, and has been responsible for the mass murder of hundreds of thousands of people. And Vladimir Putin was happy to invite him in, declare him his friend after those mass murders, and come in and help him win, and he's about to win. And that came after Mr. Putin arranged for the invasion of a European country and the annexation of a piece of that European country. Now, we're here in London, and the idea that people are not more outraged by this, the idea that people are shrugging their shoulders about Vladimir Putin's invasion of another country, which now Donald Trump, for whatever reason, and we can speculate about it, believes that working with Putin is a great thing and that sanctions should be lifted and his people removed the support for Ukrainian defense uh, forces in the, in, the, uh, in, the, in the platform. There is going to be a sea change in the West relationship with Russia, and I would argue, and maybe I'll be all wrong and I'll be happy to be uh, shown to be wrong, that four years from now there are going to be a lot of unhappy people that we got into bed with such a pernicious Russian leader. Uh, Mary Dudevsky on Russia and Trump. Well, I hope I can make an equally trenchant case in completely the opposite direction. Um, Jamie talked about there being, um, over the next four years, a sea change in relations with Russia, um, between the US and Russia, between the West and Russia generally. And I would applaud that. I would say there could be nothing better than a sea change in Western relations with Russia, led by the United States. If it's under Donald Trump, so be it. There were a lot of things that were said completely wrongly and misleadingly during the campaign. One of them was, as Jamie went into enormous detail, about the cyber hacking um, of the Democrats. 
This was never, ever, ever proved beyond all reasonable doubt to have come from the Russians. First. Second, do you not believe that everybody who has the capability to hack other people is hacking absolutely as much as they can by cyber or any other way through other other people's election campaigns. People want the intelligence. They're going to try and get it by any means. It's not, if Russia is doing it, it's not alone doing it. It's not alone having the capability. Obviously, everybody is going to be hacking. If they then choose to publish it, well, You know, why not? I mean, that doesn't seem to me to be any different order of interfering in... This is not interfering in other people's elections. It's it's, It's trying to figure out what is going on. We've seen in, in the past, we've seen the Americans and Western countries generally interfering in elections in Eastern, formerly Eastern Bloc countries, like including one? Ukraine and including Georgia, where we send envoys and we, send, we have NGOs working on the side of opposition politicians. Now, that is absolutely fine, but you can't say it's fine for us to be doing that and it's not fine for other people that we maybe don't see eye to eye with to be doing that. That is a complete double standard. Okay. But I mean, to g- do, you, on, do, you, do you want to have one more? Yeah, yeah, I, I want to have, I want and to then I'll get to Anne next, not you, okay. Jamie, because we, we need about, to talk about About the idea that the sort of, people take a very dim view of the idea that Donald Trump could rebuild, restart relations with Russia. Um, and he's, I think, been misleadingly presented as admiring Putin, thinking Putin's a jolly good thing, thinking he Russia is it. a wonderful place. He does not say that. He said that he admired... He, He said he admired Putin as a national leader who stood up for his country and represented the national interest. And he was saying that to contrast him for electoral reasons with President Obama. Right or wrong, that is the context in which he said it. And I think that Putin and Trump, who says he can, he says that he thinks he can do business with Putin. That is exactly what an American president ought to be setting out to do. Depends what he means by business, I suppose. But but let's hear from Anne Appleman. The point about Trump is that, um, and I actually think the most important point about him is really not the point about Russia. Um, He has been a long-time admirer of Putin. He's repeatedly said he admires him, going back many, many years, not just in the last two years. Following the invasion of Ukraine in 2014, he said he complimented him for doing this on television. I've seen the clip of it. It exists. You can go and find it. So, So let's just put that to one side. The more important point about Trump is what kind of a leader of the Western alliance is he going to be? Um, This is somebody who, since the first time I I know of him doing it, maybe he did it before, was in 2000, he began denigrating and undermining the NATO alliance. And not just because it's... um, you know, he, he, he often speaks about being it very expensive, but he's gone quite a bit farther than that in some of his statements. It's not just that he wants NATO members to pay up. He has said, why should we be involved in European wars? What is, it, what is our interest there? He's been very clear that he's not interested. He has no emotional or, or political or moral sense of attachment to Europe. And he said, by the way, the same thing about Japan and South Korea. I just spoke this afternoon to a Japanese journalist who, who says, you know, there's an enormous amount of concern in Japan because America is its only security umbrella. Is this going to continue? We don't know. You know, the signals have been very mixed and very complicated. 
Um, so what my concern about Trump is that he, is, he doesn't see himself... He doesn't, he doesn't see himself as a leader of a group of democratic countries, and okay. he doesn't seem to understand the benefit of alliances. You know, that the United States benefits not just... You know, it's not just the U.S. spending money to put troops places. It's also the leader of a... Um, you know, of, of a group of countries which, get, which, which have created a, a, a political and legal um, trade and economic and political order which has been hugely beneficial to the United States, to this country, and to all of Europe. And he doesn't believe in that, and he doesn't care about it. Good. Moment to go. Well Thank said. you. Okay. I just want you to pick up, because you're somebody who's served administrations of both parties... Just pick up that question that Anne Applebaum ended there with, which is what kind of Western alliance would he lead? How would he lead the Western alliance? And, and just your perspective think, on that. I think the answer is we don't know. Uh, we don't really know what sort of uh, alliance leader he would be. All the reservations that Anne expressed, uh, I have. I would have thought that in the campaign... Uh, the highest priority of someone running for president would be to uh, increase the expectation of solidarity across the alliance. Uh, Trump didn't do that. Uh, Indeed, as Ann suggested, he did just the opposite. But whether this will persist as a policy, I don't think we really know. Thank you. Um, Lots there for us to bite on. Let's take some questions. I'm going to bring them back here to this panel. I say a very quick uh, question regarding the Supreme Court, which hasn't come up yet. Who and what kind of justice do the panel expect to replace Scalia? And also, a second side point, is this the first campaign when we've all wanted the winning candidate to break all his election promises? (laughs) (laughs) Good. Thank you. There's somebody here, I hope. Yep. I think we um, we cannot hide from the R word in this election because this was... Uh, it was the white vote that got Trump in, and I'm surprised that not a single Hispanic speaker in the group. So I have a question about that, and is what are the Trump supporters going to do uh, when the extreme right, who is racist and xenophobic, not as the extreme left, are, going, uh, are attacking people for being foreigners? Um, are all you Trump supporters who claim not to be racist going to do something about it, or are you going to keep your hands crossed? And the other question, um, the I other thing that's, is... That's enough, I think, don't you? Climate change. Okay, climate change. I'll make sure we talk about it. Um, thank you, though. I'm just trying to sweep it, move things along. Somebody's waving at me frantically over here. Yes, this will be the last one in this round. I'm going to take others, don't worry, and people up there. Yeah. Hi, I'm Mexican. I don't have horns. I did not come here illegally. But I do have a very large Trump piñata at home. (laughs) And I want to share with you what happened to my seven-year-old son at one of London's top schools, if I should should say that. He's seven years old, and one of his classmates told him very recently, I am a Trump supporter. All Mexicans are terrorists except for you. So I think, you know, he he makes metaphors, whatever offense. But I think the point here is that whether or not we have the luxury of taking Trump seriously, we cannot sidestep the fact that he won this election by mobilizing people around dehumanizing others. And I think... Yes. And I I want to ask... 
is this the world that we want our children to grow up in? And I do put that question to the Trump supporters. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, well, those two last questions. I'm going to come around, don't worry. We're going to do another round. Those two last questions, I think, do uh, belong together. And why don't we put them straight to you, Ted Malik? The, uh, the, uh, question, the questioner suggests that Trump won, even if it wasn't in his program, he won by mobilizing uh, some of this racially charged hostility. Uh, and again, the lady here said, what, what are Trump supporters going to do with the fact that that was a big part of his support. Is there a job of sort of repairing to be done no, as a result no, I, of it? I, I think that you, you do need, as he said in his Victory Night speech, to bring the country together, to heal the divides, to go forward, to bring diversity into the cabinet and into the government. I mean, the, the, I, mean I guess in, in partial answer, the, the oddity might be that a, a higher percentage of Mexicans and, and blacks voted for Donald Trump than voted for uh, Romney or McCain. Yeah, 29% of Latino voters did vote those for Donald Trump. Those were the illegal Trump. voters, yeah. I mean, those were the... She's joking. Um, if Steve, they showed their cards... Steve, I just know. want to call up Steve Hilton, if I can, um, taking the risk of losing the line to Philip Bobbitt, I hope not. But, Steve, um, climate change came up here. It didn't come up in the four and a half hours of televised debates. But you, you famously advised David Cameron when he was in his vote blue, go green period... Uh, you took climate change seriously. The candidate you've been advocating for says that climate change is a hoax perpetrated by the Chinese. And I wonder how you square that with your earlier advocacy of a position on climate change. The, the simple answer is that I've never equated being green with climate change. Uh, and so the, the action that, that I argued very strongly for in, in the period running up to the 2010 election and subsequently was actually... Not, not focused mainly on climate change, but more on conservation and the, uh, the alarm that we should have over species loss and biodiversity and, and so on. Um, I think that what's the problem with climate change and the reason that actually, despite the, you know, I'd, I'd use the word obsession with climate change on, uh, in certain parts of the left in America, is that actually it's, it's an agenda that's been captured by big business. It's not really about being green or environmental at all. Actually, what it's really about now is taxpayer subsidy to big businesses to uh, support a particular um, economic response. It's, it's not really about being green at all. So I've never seen um, being green as the same as taking climate change okay. seriously. I'm actually more of a skeptic than many people assume from my advocacy of the green agenda. Okay, thank you. Um, Stacey Hilliard, I, I want you to take up the very first question about who you expect or perhaps who you think should be nominated to this vacant seat on the Supreme Court, tremendously important uh, for uh, uh, American law and culture, etc., those decisions that a judge can make. And perhaps you want to address, I think, this, this point about race that's come up. Yeah, I, I think just on the Supreme Court, the type of justices that we're looking at are somebody who's going to be more of a constitutionalist. Um, that's what you've kind of heard him talking about. You have heard Trump talk about he would appoint pro-life justices, and I know this has sent shivers down a lot of people's spines, but if you look at people like Ted Cruz, who will not be appointed to the Supreme Court, and he specifically said that uh, just the other day to somebody, but saying that... Encouraging. Well, maybe for you. Um, but I think it's people who respect the law, and the law is the law, and that they will, they will look at it that way. They're not going to go out and seek to overturn anything. Um, but people who will actually be seen as a strict constitutionalist is the type of justices that he'll be looking at. Um, but I do want to just... 
Well, I hope so. And I and I disagree with that. And and what, I think what, that's I think that's what, horrendous. Because I'm not sure that. everyone heard it. Why don't we bring the microphone to the rather well-known questioner, <laughs> well, whose voice will be familiar? Well, I'm really sorry, but I'm a bit of a busybody. I've just come from my show. I'm very you know uh, adrenaline up, and I'm listening to this conversation. I think several things have to be made clear. One, we clearly live in a post-truth society. The idea that green is not the same as climate change and conversation is bananas. The idea. The, the idea that, that Vladimir Putin somehow is the great defender of all the values that we believe in. I mean, does anybody, has anybody asked what Vladimir Putin has done in Syria, Mary, really, honestly, seriously? Is that the kind of world that we want? Look at well, Syria right can I, now. Can I just suggest and, that? I just want to address that. One more, one and more, and then we're the going to bring it back. The First Amendment of the United States, you say a strict constitutionalist, right? I'm a journalist. I believe in free speech. It's my guaranteed right as a journalist working for an American society. The President of the United States, elect, made his first tweet threatening the media, talking about inciting protests. That's the first one. And then he's just come out and talked about protests and flag burning. So which part of the Constitution? these, These are legitimate questions. It's his freedom of speech to say those things as well. And I think that You know, I I totally disagree with him about the flag-burning comment that he made, and he's received a lot of criticism about that. Um, But as far as the issue with Syria... Just to bring people up to speed, this was a tweet in which he said people had burned the flag. Yes, there was an issue with a a university in in New Hampshire, I believe, that um, the the flag was taken down to half-mast after the election, um, and people were protesting, and somebody pulled it down and burnt it, and that it was being covered, and he tweeted... And he said those people should perhaps lose their citizenship. Well, actually, well, Hillary Clinton was, I believe, a signatory to a bill, the flag-burning, the bill that that gave a $100,000 fine and a year in prison. I know you were going to... We've steered you off. You wanted to make a quick point about the race uh, claim that was made, and I just want to hear your response to that. There's another well-known Trump supporter here. I also want to put it to him. So let's just get back onto the questions. I I think it's really important to address this race issue, but this is something that has been boiling for the last eight years. I've seen the divisions happening in our society that we haven't had in the past. And I think one of, as far as with the election, as far as everybody saying, well, it was only the whites who came out and it was a white supremacist uh, movement that came and voted Trump in, that's incorrect. What voted Trump in was Obama voters who voted for him in 2008 and 2012 in Michigan and Pennsylvania. Hillary Clinton was unable to motivate those voters and get them out to the polls. Okay, um, there's so much ground to cover. I recognise uh, since we've had Christian Amanpour from the C- uh, from CNN, Charlie Wolf, who's a regular broadcaster uh, on American TV networks and did uh, has been a supporter of Donald Trump. Just tell us how you deal with this thing that people said here, which is Trump supporters need to acknowledge the fact that some of the mobilising energy in this campaign was hostile to different racial minorities, and you know that the Ku Klux Klan and David Duke endorsed and were very warm in their endorsement of Donald Trump. You, as somebody who backs Donald Trump, how do you deal with that? Charlie Wolf. It it was said uh, when Reagan was backed by uh, someone who was one of these white supremacist groups at the time, Reagan said, well, actually, he's endorsing my plan, not I'm endorsing his plan. And that's how I think it was the other day with the the chap in Washington, D.C., was endorsing Trump and Trump's plan. So Trump isn't endorsing his uh, you know, I think most Americans, the vast majority of Americans, take race relations very seriously. And it, and it has disturbed me that in the last eight years, we have seen this sort of split 
between the black and the white com uh, communities, and it's under a black president, and I don't fully know why. I don't know why groups like uh, Black Lives Matter have been invited to the White House that have only caused problems to the black community, not helped them in, in, in at all. And yes, unfortunately, Mr. Obama has made many, uh, uh, many times has opened his mouth before the brain was engaged in putting forward things that weren't true, Professor Gates being one. Uh, I have a son, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon, getting involved in things where he shouldn't have been. And I would also point out... Uh, Sorry, Charlie, how is that racially divisive to say, if I had a son, he would have looked like Trayvon Martin? It, because he was taking a side between the police and, and the event before we knew what was going on. That was the problem there. He, no, he, he's... It has nothing to... No, I, I, you know... All right, com com complete your point, Charlie, right. and I've wanted and to... I, I just wanted... Uh, one important point I wanted to put towards Jamie... He gave a very, uh, a very good uh, explanation of Syria and, uh, and what's going on there. But yes. let me ask, who was the president? It hasn't been Donald Trump. It's been Mr. Obama. And it's that. Mr. Obama who set a red line that he didn't back up. Now, I think with Mr. Trump, Trump at least, Trump at least respects power, and I think people of power respect power back. I see someone like Trump able to negotiate better yeah. than Mr. Obama will, because unlike a senator who will just lie down like he did for Iran... Trump will expect something in return. And I think that's one of the reasons why I, I have more faith in him than I do Mr. Obama. Okay, the second half of the Amanpour Rubin tag team is keen, <laughs> is keen to break in here. So very briefly, right. and then I want to put some... Very briefly, um, you are correct. President Obama's decision not to follow through on the red line is part of the reason that Syria has collapsed into the situation it's in. Okay? That's true. I don't think you can dispute that. But that, that's a failure to act. What we're talking about here, and the reason why I'm so, and you can see I'm not the only one, concerned about uh, Mr. Putin, is because he has acted. He has returned Russia to the Middle East, where they've never been for the last, I don't know, 30 years, and he's been responsible to have their airplanes working with the Syrian airplanes to bomb civilians and destroy them, and the president-elect has not found it in his interest to even mention that and has frankly said that he thinks Putin is doing a pretty good job in Syria when Mr. Putin hasn't struck ISIS. There's this big myth that the Russians are in, in, in Syria well, for ISIS and that's what, what uh, President-elect Trump has blessed. But all they've really done is destroy the opposition, which is why Aleppo will fall in the next couple of days and Mr. Assad responsible for mass murder. That's my problem. We all want to deal with the Russians. But if you're going to forget their invasion of Ukraine, if you're going to forget what they did in Syria, if you're going to forget their interference, and no one has ever done it where they've published the information, okay? There's a big difference. The NGOs in Georgia are openly supporting democracy. There's no hidden secret plan to remove information and publish it. That's, That's how, the difference. How did, how did President Obama stand up? to this evil tyrant, Not Mr. very Putin. well. Not Thank very you. well. Okay, but Mr. but Mr. Obama at least had the dignity, the dignity to say that Please big don't. countries don't invade small countries mm -hmm. and impose sanctions, and Mr. Trump wants to lift them. That's my problem. Okay. Good evening. This question is for the panel, but also for Philip Bobbitt. I'd like to ask how the business interests of Trump are in direct conflict with the, constitutional, yes. the Constitution oh, yes. of the United States and how this impacts the vote of the Electoral College. Ah, interesting. Um, and Philip Bobbitt, of course, an expert on constitutional law, so we'll put that in. Yeah. 
And you're going to be the last one in this round. Hello. I'm so sorry for people who didn't manage to get a go. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is oh. for Anne and Jamie and Jonathan for yourself. Where um, did that come from? It's a completely different person. Hello. Okay, you weren't the person I had in mind, but nevertheless, okay, we'll hear from you and then we'll hear from you. Yeah. Um, Given that there's so much dissension amongst the panel about what's truth and what isn't coming out of Donald Trump's mouth, um, in terms of journalists covering Donald Trump now and for the next four years, um, I know, Jamie, your wife, has spoken very eloquently about this recently, but uh, for Jonathan, for you and for Anne and whomever else wants to, how do journalists uh, cover Trump given uh, the new uh, state of play that we're in with Thank what he you. says. This really specific question about this, so the Trump's business interests, and if you could unpack for us what the charge against him is in terms of the Constitution and how um, this might affect the Electoral College. And it's a bit arcane, but I think it's worth explaining. So could you just talk, walk us through that? So I'm not a constitutional lawyer, but there is a clause in the Constitution that says... Um, a president cannot accept emoluments from foreign sources. Um, and this, so essentially any kind of payment that comes to Donald Trump through his company um, that comes from abroad theoretically can be construed as a bribe or as an attempt to influence the president of the United States one way or the other. And it would take an act this, of Congress, by the way, to prove that emolument. Okay. And that's no, no, not I'm, going to happen. So, so I'm, 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 it's so, a non-issue. It's, so I'm sorry that Philip Bobbitt can't be more, more precise than I can. I think there's actually a deeper and broader issue, and I was trying to find a place to bring this up before, which is um, you know, whether or not it's constitutional, there is a, there is a profound moral problem with the, the fact that Trump has not revealed his income taxes. We don't know who owns his companies. Um, I am told, and I do not have proof, um, and you'll be in this, you know, it's a post true society, but I would like to say, you know, that here I don't know, I don't have the proof. I'm not going to claim something I don't know. Um, I, I have been told that there is, for example, massive Russian investment in his buildings in the United States, that many of the apartments oh, there have come been built on. by... You can, Come do on. Be- you can do better, I think. You can do better. His Deutsche son, Bank. His, his son has said so. His son said You that. don't believe his son? Yeah. <laughs> you don't believe his son. Russians have invested in some of his properties. Um, Mary Jujessi, well, how should journalists cover Donald Trump? I think they should cover Donald Trump exactly the same way they cover everybody else. I mean, I, d- I don't see that there, that, that, that there is an issue here. You report what people say. If you're a commentator, you can say you disapprove, you don't believe it, or you think it's absolutely wonderful. And if you're a reporter, true you report- or not? What if he lies? We haven't had a president who aggressively lies every day on Twitter before. We have, for eight years. No. No. I don't think we, it, we didn't it, hear Ted, hang on, we didn't hear Ted Malik's response. When, I said we, we've had a president that has lied every day on Twitter for eight years. So you think Obama's lied that? every day? Absolutely. Oh, God. And you, you I know he's a great favorite in London. Can you give an example of a lie that he's told well, us? He, he came over here and tried to get people to vote against Brexit. You said he lied there. Yeah. That's not a lie. That's not a lie. That's no, an argument. Not. I mean, that isn't, I mean, urging people to vote one way on Brexit may be unwise. It wasn't untrue. It wasn't untrue? Well, no. He, he offered an opinion. How is that? I don't know how that could be untrue. Just he was just saying on, this is what I think. On. Just move on. Um, Stacey Hilliard, I'm going to let you close out with this thought. Unless we can still hear... Is, is Steve Hilton able to hear us? Yes. Steve, no, is Steve Hilton... Sure you've got Phil yes, but can we hear him? <laughs> can we hear him? That's the question. Steve, can we hear you? I can hear you. Good, good, good. OK. So very quickly, Steve, you were asked about the various hate speech 
that uh, the questioner said uh, the president-elect is guilty of on Twitter, and you were asked, as somebody who's been supporting him, specifically the question was directed to you, how can you defend it? Just, just as brief as you can, because we're in our last 90 seconds. Yeah, okay. I think that the, that question was in response to the discussion that Jamie raised about the, the, the accusations of voting yeah. uh, irregularity and the exchange with CNN. Now, you may say that what he said about millions of people voting illegally was crazy or laughable or wrong, but it's not hate speech. And I think that the, the, the real point here on... Trump's behavior is that it would be great if we could have a president who was both dignified and effective. But actually what we've seen over the last eight years and likely to see in the next four or eight years is that I'm afraid that's not on offer. We've had a president in Obama who's been extremely dignified, conducted himself beautifully, uses words beautifully, but I'm afraid, and in terms of the economy at home, has not been effective. He's delivered stagnation. And internationally, he's projected weakness abroad, including encouraging the adventurism of Putin. And looking forward, I think given the state of the U.S. economy and people's living standards and the state of the world and the threats we face from terrorism and elsewhere, I fear that we're going to have to take effectiveness over a dignified president. And I think that's the right choice to make. Thank you. Very concise. Closing last word to you, Stacey Hilly. I just want to go back a little bit about uh, the comments about uh, Trump on Twitter and what it's actually normalized. Um, I think we do have to take what he says on Twitter seriously. He is the president of the United States and what he, or president-elect, and when he becomes president, that is going to have influence, whether it's on markets, whether it's on trade, whether it's on foreign relations. And I think that that's something that he will have to learn. And unfortunately, I don't like my president being an apprentice in the job. But I think that he will see the realities that he's facing. And everybody who's come into the presidency, nobody's been president before unless you've come in on a second term. They're faced with realities. They see how difficult it is. For him to deliver on all 28 things, I don't think that's going to be possible when he sees how difficult that becomes. Okay. Well, thank you for that closing word. Closing uh, word to you, Philip Bobbitt, because you've got a very big devoted right. following here. Well, thank room. you. I, I really apologize for all my technical uh, incompetence. <laughs> We have a system of checks and balances. That system depends most heavily on the Congress, not on the President. But you will have substantial majorities in the House and in the Senate behind a program that I think Donald Trump will eventually endorse. So I would expect to see real challenges for the Democratic Party to keep our, our eyes on, on a constitutional uh, in programmatic uh, basis, and to leave some of the things about Donald Trump, which have, I must confess, really irritated me and uh, turned me off, to put those to one side. If we don't organize that way, then I'm afraid the public will decide that we're just as hopeless as, uh, as the Republicans are. With that closing word, thank you very much for that. Anne Applebaum, James Rubin, Stacey Hilliard, Mary Dijewski, Ted Malik. Steve Hilton and Philip Bobbitt. Thank you all very much. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. 
And we also use our cutting edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.